1: to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas Purchase Today, Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand.
2: John Thompson, Pollyanna with an edge. I don't know what a Pollyanna is, but... I'm glad you have an edge. Veteran reporter of Northwestern Ontario, my co-conspirator at Return to Thunder Bay. Welcome to Shortcuts. How are you? I'm great. Pollyanna is just endless optimism in the face of anything. That's what it is. Wow. I need to help rewrite your bio. Uh, Today on the show, I, Ryan McMahon, and John Thompson will be taking over while jesse is away i'm really glad to be here i've been here before i love the show we have a great show planned for you this week on the show we're talking about why and how indigenous people's right to clean drinking water needs to go past headline coverage and into proper deep dive coverage to properly tell the story of one of Canada's most atrocious truths. That was a mouthful, but I like the writing. Ottawa is now required broadcasters to fund indigenous productions. We, of course, are criticizing the media here at Canada Land, and so today we need to talk about how and why we go past production and delve into how the soup actually gets made inside the world of Canadian TV. Sounds like an exciting show. Might you agree, John? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, by the way. It's nice to be here. This episode of Candleland Shortcuts is brought to everyone in part by Mainda Fortier, Fraser Shad, Sarah McLeod, Lynn Cody, Kat Lantain, Chris Stone, Jordan Wilson, and Rory.
0: Hi, this is Rory from Ottawa. And I support Canada Land because they are among the best in the land at embarrassing the establishment Canadian media and their corporate partners. I'm from the First Nation. I miss my house. I miss hanging out my, with my friends back home because in a good place. I want them to take the water so we can go back to our little town. feel like we don't exist kind of that nobody would care. because we're suffering to get clean water. Go live there to see how it feels getting no clean water get the water fixed. Systemic racism exists
2: in the government itself. Either we're not classified as human beings, we're not classified as that. If we're told to drink the bacterial water that's damaging to our health, you know, if that's not racism, what is it? That was some audio taken from a video uh, posted this past week of a young girl from Niskandaga. First Nation. And the second audio clip you heard was from a former chief of the community. Now, these have come onto our radar. This past week, NDP MPP in Ontario, Saul Mamaqua, shared the video of this young girl pleading. For clean drinking water. It's made its rounds on social media because the full evacuation of the community is still ongoing. It was ordered October 25th, 2020, just days after, quote, an oily sheen was discovered in their water supply. John, you've been to the community, you've covered this issue, years have passed. What are you hearing? inside of Thunder Bay as it relates to this ongoing story.
3: More than 250 members of Niskanaga First Nation are living in Thunder Bay have been for the last few weeks since the latest in this unbelievably long cascading issue of boil water in their community. The children were outside demonstrating last week trying to get the contractor to be paying attention. Since they've been gone there's been a COVID case discovered in a contractor there so everybody in the community that's holding it up their kind of skeleton crew has been tested and uh, everyone else was negative but like when we talk about First Nations boil water advisories this one is unreal it's been going on since 1995 in Niskaniga First Nation post-war Europe was reconstructed in less time that it's taken the Canadian government to build a functioning drinking water plant in Niskaniga it took less time for the ancient Egyptians to build the Great Pyramid of Giza like the years that the boil water advisory was declared, the first internet search engines were released. So, for the first time, we could find addresses on the world wide web. Okay, but this is how long this boil water advisory has been going on. But,
2: John, you need to bring back the Pollyanna energy here. <laughs> I'm I'm just I'm
3: just saying that when when <laughs> when we talk about all of the, the the boil of water advisories going away in five years and the promise of the liberal government, this was the crown jewel one, and and it's it's continuing to be in a state that
2: is just humiliating and terrible for the people who live there. So we have Saul Mamaqua, MPP. Uh, on Twitter, basically petitioning uh, the known universe to email the Premier and the Minister for Indigenous Affairs to step up immediately and fix the water crisis in Niskanaga. Is a public shaming what is needed here uh, through the media and through social media to make this government act? What are we doing wrong here? What is the disconnect between the reality on the ground and those that are making decisions for Indigenous peoples in this community, Mamaqua, uh and
3: the Ontario NDP uh, did a did a tour. Uh, I think it was last year, saying that uh, Ontario, you know, as a as a signatory to Treaty uh, to Treaty Nine, which is where Niscanaga is, has equal right to the federal government to an equal responsibility. Uh, to, to do water there and why in the world isn't Ontario participating in that, that news more or less
2: fell flat. I don't know if I'm the only one that gets excited about this stuff, John, but I do have to say that we need the media to be able to unpack that very question, the unique arrangement that is uh, treaty nine. I get excited by that. This is the potential of being able to fix these problems, but it seems like we can't have that conversation. The interjurisdictional juggling, as you often call
3: it, uh, between different levels of government, uh, and that includes uh, municipalities and First Nations, is something that's very, very challenging to make average Canadians who are not directly interested in this involved. It's a game of hot potato. And if you turn on the news two days in a row and the game
2: of hot potato is still going on, it's hard to see whether it's changing or how it's changing. Maybe to make Joe Canada, you know, be a part of the conversation is that every time, every time they, they read the the word uh, treaty, uh, they take a shot. Maybe we can turn it into like a drinking game. Sure. (laughs) Sure. And,
3: and David Zimmer, the, the former Ontario Indigenous Affairs Minister, used to say all the time or when he'd come around here, you know, like most people don't know that there are treaties in this province. And I was just like, yeah, but most people around here do. So let's start from there.
2: <laughs> the re-education of Canada is an ongoing project. And I just think that, yeah, the more information we have about these, these legal and fiduciary responsibilities to answer these questions, the better. They are generally straightforward questions. But as you've identified, it's a hot potato. The Jurisdictional Juggling Act is ever present uh, in this question. And, and frankly, I mean, in so many questions as it relates to Indigenous lives uh, in Canada. And the courts aren't going
3: to make those decisions in large part either. These have to be political discussions and the pressure has to come from the media and the public, however, in whatever direction it comes in. And so I I feel like just about everything has been tried in the media, including encouraging news for the government. When Carolyn Bennett, then Minister of Indigenous Affairs, went up to Niskandiga in 2016, I was part of that press junket that went along. And she said at that time, you know, there was a, this is a priority for us. This this one is our top priority. There was a young girl in the crowd as she was looking at bottled water versus what the people there have to drink and and bathe in, and she said, "Quote, just tell me what you need. I want to hear it in your voice." And the little girl said, I need a new water plant. And so when we, that clip you played off the start, like we're still hearing that five years later um, from the same community, from younger
2: children. So, I mean, nothing's changing. (laughs) Yeah, this, this is where, this is where I jump off the reconciliation train and start flipping tables because, I mean, the fact that Carolyn Bennett asked a young girl in that community to just say it to, I want, it's like, I want to, I want to torture you. I want to hear it in your voice. Let your childhood voice fall into my spirit so that I know I can go away back to Ottawa and make good, sound policy judgments. Just give it to me, make me cry with it and really, really punch home these words and as you're telling me you need clean drinking water. Like this is, this is a joke. And the fact that we're still here and the fact that Niscandiga and other communities need to make corporate style videos of their children begging for drinking water should be a shame, but instead it's a tool to sway public opinion. Now, Let's dig a little bit deeper into um, the media responsibility of covering this story. Often we see these, these, these types of issues flare up, they end up on headlines, and then we keep moving. We move on to the next sad story that involves Indigenous people. What could Canadian media be doing better to cover these stories, to tell the story of, of the failed infrastructure in First Nations? Or are they already doing this, their job, and this is more of a political question?
3: I think we should start this, Ryan, by looking back at the, the success the media had in getting this on the agenda in the first place. Like you're aware, uh, more more than just about anybody, how out of sight, out of mind the issues of First Nations infrastructure are uh, to the to the mainstream Canadian public, um, and yet this became the one thing. So, like for me, this went back to uh, 2007 or eight. I was out in Mishkegogamung, and I was looking at like. Open sewage uh, containers that, you know, dogs were drinking out of next to houses that didn't have windows. And I came back and talked to my, my local health unit about it. Pete Sarsfield went on the record and told this story that got recognized by the Canadian Medical Association in 2009, saying that Canada had two drinking fountains just the way that you would have seen it in the, in the deep South in the United States, uh, where if you have one socio-legal identity, you're entitled to have clean water, and if you have another, you're just not. And so we can fast forward through everything that happened there, but Idle No More happened, and a lot of complicated movements came together as one. The Liberals capitalized on this with their nation-to-nation discussions and reconciliation promise in 2015, and if there's one thing that was concretely promised by the Trudeau government, it was that they were going to deal with this boil water advisory thing. And so like, let's start from the fact that this was a triumph of media paying attention to a flagrant human rights violation in this country that ended up becoming front page news on a regular basis. It has since fallen off the front page. And, and I think that's, it's important to say that that's where we are now.
2: I think it's important to tell people that eliminating water advisories, the goal of that by the federal government has has now been nixed. They did say 2021, uh, Trudeau has come out and said that goal is no longer within reach and that there will be an extension needed there. And so I think it's important we mention it. I think we can all agree that COVID puts us in, a, in an extraordinary circumstance, but that that goal is now pushed. There's been no Uh, Real update uh, as of yet to what the new goal might be, but this is Canadian politics. This is what happens. We go through these cycles, we set priorities, and eventually the governments change and the priorities change. So we'll definitely be keeping uh, an eye on that. John, you had some numbers that you wanted to run uh, that you picked up just before our recording. What what were those numbers again?
3: So as of today, there are 61 First Nations left on the long-term boil water advisory list. And that's more than halfway since 2015. There have been 88 resolved, but it's not that much more than halfway after five years. And that long-term list is the one the Liberals campaigned on clearing over five years. It now looks as though they may not achieve uh, that. First Nations leaders are now saying that it's impossible for them to achieve that. And actually, I remember interviewing Carolyn Bennett uh, shortly after she was elected, uh, and I I kind of burst out laughing in the interview um, and said, uh, when I asked her how in the world she was going to get this done, because it, it's it seemed like it was not possible without massive overhauls to the bureaucratic way that this happens.
2: There are a number of challenges as it relates to to these uh, water treatment plants and things on in communities. I mean, we're talking about needing to train maintenance workers, uh, training uh, operators and, and those challenges, not to mention the bureaucratic nightmares of getting facilities approved. These are all barriers in the way, but these are not impossibilities. Um, And this is, uh, again, it's one of those moving stories that uh, we will need to follow on a go forward basis. But I mean, how many times do we need to hear about a story like this before we just don't care anymore, right? Like like this becomes an election issue, not a like a human rights issue. And I fear that stories like this if we just brush by them Uh, through the canadian media and don't keep our foot on the gas pedal here and keep these stories moving into the canadian consciousness that it is just sort of one of those stories that just rolls through the cycle and gets lost in the wash
3: for sure so like there's a whole lot to unpack in there bennett when she was in niskaniga in 2016 again was talking about 8.4 billion dollars and totally unimaginable number and so that comes three years after the federally funded feasibility study deemed the water plant worthwhile. So they had to say, is isn't necessary after 21 years? And then for three years after that, they're doing a study on whether it's necessary and then they can move forward. So some of those bureaucratic challenges uh, are being handled. And when you talk about governments changing and priorities changing, it's important to say that the fire under the seat of this in the bureaucracy is doing something you know it's it's by all accounts better than when there wasn't anybody there saying that this was important And so I think that's important to say that, like, it's not all lost. There are things moving forward. And that training piece you brought up is the other thing. I've seen cases uh, where uh, plants that are worth millions of dollars have failed because either a single piece goes down and it's not available to fix it, or there is nobody in the community who is trained to operate this giant Machinery. This is trade skill work, right? Um, so I don't know. There's a, there's a number of different organizations. I was speaking to somebody from Water First yesterday, uh, and they're they're starting to work by tribal council to train people. So uh, proof of concept down in uh, I say down for most listeners, it's probably up in Manitoulin Island. Uh, trained a number of people to operate on these uh, on these plants. They're now trying it up in uh, the Bimose area, which is. For our listeners who aren't familiar, Kenora, uh, just east of the Manitoba border at the north end of Lake of the Woods. And there's 11 communities out there. They have 11 out of 15 of those people are trained now. And there's a sense of kind of like pride and heroism that goes along with this in the same way that a young child would be begging the minister Uh, to to fix their water plant you have young people who are going into the trades and going into clean water generation for their community and this is seen as really important like social infrastructure for this community Uh, in a way that like you know i'm from thunder bay the people who work in public works in my community are not heralded by the elders in the same kind of way that that we've seen this happen in first nations across northern ontario and so again there's a lot going on but there's a lot still to do and the question is how do we keep it on the front page. You're absolutely
2: right. You know, between all the scandals of the liberal government and and everything they have faced, I do think that this might be the biggest one. The failure to meet the promise of delivering clean drinking water, you know, to to all First Nations, Inuit and Métis communities in Canada was a major promise in the last election. Frankly, the government should be evaluated on the basis of whether they fulfill promises, period. And, and you know, I think the media needs to figure out a way of making this story cut through, go beyond the headlines and find a way to make this story connect uh, to the body politic out there.
1: This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. Canadians prefer and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca/canadaland to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there's an opioid crisis. Right now, there's a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope.
2: John, on this show, we like to do something called Duly Noted. We duly note things that may have been missed in this week's round of headlines. And as you know, on this show, we usually have one each to offer. So I would like to go first, if that's okay. Are you ready to duly note something? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do, do the duly. We are going to do the duly. I would like to duly note that currently Manitoba is on fire with COVID. And uh, in particular, First Nations uh, in Manitoba are really suffering with COVID. And uh, as we know, healthcare care and uh, infrastructure questions in First Nations, Inuit and Métis communities across Canada uh, are always in question, uh, made worse, in fact, uh, by COVID and the reality that... In many communities, we're talking about communities that only have nursing stations, which are essentially sometimes trailers that are single room, um, and they just don't have the capacity to care for people. Currently, in northern Manitoba, in Opaskwayak Cree Nation, there is a 100% COVID rate inside of a long-term care home there. It is a catastrophe. And please, 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 when we tell you, stay home wash your hands put on masks this is for the most vulnerable people in our communities towns and cities and for first nations right now writ large across canada but in particular in manitoba we are talking life and death and who could have predicted this right ryan well, absolutely. I mean, this was always the, the big question about whether COVID uh, would hit communities and when it would. And and it is now here and we're seeing catastrophic results. So we're asking people to please uh, just remind each other of good, proper etiquette around getting through this wave of, of COVID and uh, definitely sending our thoughts and, and well wishes up to uh, Pasqueak Cree Nation in, uh, in northern Manitoba. Duly Noted. John, what do you have for Duly Noted? Well, I'd like to duly note that out in Eagle Lake, there's
3: been an elder, a great grandmother who is, whos who has been on a hunger strike for, uh, as of as the publication of this podcast, 41 days already. There's been some coverage, a little bit of local coverage, APTN picked it up, and the hunger strike is to call on the leadership of the the region's First Nation, the 3D3 leadership, to take control of child welfare and the system out there. When, when you and I, Ryan, talked to uh, Senator Murray Sinclair about systemic racism and some of the work we're doing with the Thunder Bay podcast, he pointed out that in some child welfare agencies in this country, they're looking at a 30 to 50% number of young people who become incarcerated after having been in these systems, not to say as a result, but after being in these systems. And at what point do we say that this is not succeeding around here for certain, but across Canada in general, Indigenous people are greatly overrepresented and, you know, where we're from in Northern Ontario, uh, extremely greatly overrepresented, I spoke to her uh, earlier today and what she said, we were not using her name because she has great grandchildren in care. Um, but what she said was that the organizations, which frequently are, you know, names, uh, have, you know, uh, Anishinaabe Moan or Ojibwe language names, but are in name only. And they're subject to the provincial uh, regulations and, and oversight. And as a result, she's saying failing people in this, in this region where we live. So on the 28th of November, there's going to be an AGM for, uh, G child services, that region's organization. Uh, there's going to be a round dance and a demonstration and she's going to come and speak there. And by that point she will have been on hunger strike for another few weeks. And I feel like this is undercovered. I feel like the, the issue is extremely complicated. There's a few journalists who do it well. But but I think that child welfare reform is becoming low-hanging fruit. Uh, it's overdue, and this is an opportunity, I think, uh, where
2: we might actually see a hinge moment and some real change. Duly noted. John, I don't know if you heard this week, but there was a a rather large announcement. The Liberal government is planning to make Indigenous programming a new requirement for Canadian broadcasters, which will be a part of a a reform in the Broadcasting Act here in Canada. Jesse Wente tweeted uh, the news and the fact that so many others have pushed for this to happen, and it finally feels like a moment where we are here. Did you hear the story this week? I did, and I haven't seen you since, and I'm dying to hear your take on this. Well, this is good. <laughs> I mean, more Indigenous stories, more Indigenous productions on any broadcaster can only be a good thing. There are more young actors, more writers, more directors, more producers. I mean, we're on the verge, we're on the cusp of something really incredible, and now here we are in this moment. And I think... I think it will be mostly positive, but you might be surprised, John, that because this is a media criticism show and because we need to have some type of criticism reflected uh, back onto the stories that we cover here on Shortcuts, that I also want to throw up some flags. Are you okay with that?
3: Absolutely. Let's start with as resources become available for the purpose, which was the old wording, as resources become available for the purpose of producing Indigenous content. How's that been going?
2: Well, as you know, resources are finite. Uh, uncertain economic times. <laughs> That's right. We don't we don't have to look too far to read between the lines on what that mumble jumble garbly gook actually means as resources become available. You know, each broadcaster will need to set priorities um on, on what type of programming will qualify inside the new broadcasting act, which was tabled earlier in November. Now they wanted to take a look at the Broadcasting Act because they were trying to look at ways to regulate um, the big companies like uh, the Spotify's, the Netflix, the Amazon Primes. Like, is there a way to ensure that they are taxed because they are doing business here in Canada? And it looks like so far there is no answer to that question yet. But Let's just zoom out a little bit and just take a look at what the potential for this might mean. Now, this might mean that a Bell, Globe Media, you know, the CTVs of the world, the CBCs of the world will mandatorily need to carry uh, Indigenous programming, which sounds like a great idea. But we have to be aware of who's in the room making decisions around what gets broadcasted? Who sets those priorities? And here is where I get really nervous. Who is actually making decisions at the table with these broadcasters to green light the stories that may get told here um, as these these floodgates open?
3: Yeah, this isn't going to make uh, any direct impact on the CBC, we understand. The Globe and Mail uh, was publishing that there's going to be some broader reforms to the CBC, uh, and and I feel like the CBC and its Indigenous content kind of n- needs its, its whole own show. Um, but when you look at uh, the leadership of media organizations in Canada, Ryan, these tend not to be people who have risen to their
2: position because of their expertise in Indigenous issues. And further to complicate this, I mean, we are looking at, you know, a single Indigenous pot which uh, will fulfill these programming mandates and as we know the diversity of in quote in air quotes Indigenous peoples across Canada, close quotes, means that we're just going to get a big old pot of messy stew happening. I mean, we will need Inuit voices heard, we will need uh, Métis voices heard, and we will need uh, First Nations voices heard across Canada. But then when you start splitting the hairs, what about the non-status Indigenous people that aren't represented by First Nation stories? The urban Indigenous people not represented by uh, First Nation stories. This Is going to get messy and thank goodness Jesse Wente is there to do the work because I'm not interested.
3: (laughs) (laughs) If you were designing that system then and recognizing that these are all like mostly private entities, uh, how would you how would you imagine them trying to tackle this because the expertise is not in house. There's some work going on to diversify newsrooms this year as a result of finally realizing how white and male newsrooms in Canada are. But like you
2: suggest, this is not this is not diving into the the shallow end. I think the best thing that that these broadcasters can do is start hiring indigenous people uh, that are in the industry and and find those that that have their finger on the pulse of indigenous media and storytelling i mean you can look across the board and i can tell you there are young hungry up and comers. There are people that are, are mid career and there are well established uh, creatives out there that can fill these roles that can bring these stories to the table. And, you know, so long as we're not creating projects that are upholding the tropes that satisfy the white gaze and fit the sort of stereotypical ideas, that so many hold of our people. I think there's a real possibility here, but it's the question of what stories Canada is comfortable hearing right now that is an open question. And so we see this conversation start to melt and fall apart a bit in the reconciliation space. Whenever the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, the opposite is true. When the going gets tough in the reconciliation space, we all scurry back to our our communities and, and, and escape through the back door because because god damn it is this work uh difficult and so i i think that if it, if indigenous people are in the room and at the table and we pump the brakes on trying to uh uh fast forward through all the hard stuff and actually empower Indigenous creators, then I think we're going somewhere meaningful with this. So
3: what you're talking about is uh, more or less breaking down the the traditional leadership of, of newsrooms, where we understood uh, journalists to be rising to become editors and publishers, and then overseeing organizations and shaping the way that news works. What I hear you saying, I think, is that having Indigenous people throughout those systems Um, in from the top, from the top down means that it's necessary to stop doing things so top down because it won't work that way. What Wente says, it is it is exactly the right moment for this. Um, and and I, you know, I I hear you saying the that there's ripe producers out there and the stories are are there. Do you think it's exactly the right moment, um, for for this kind of initiative?
2: It feels early but I am going to be a Pollyanna with an edge and I'm going to say, let's see what happens. That's your Canada Land shortcuts. You can email Jesse about it at jesse at Land Flood his emails. He loves that and he reads them all. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. John, where can people find you? I'm at Twitter at John S. Thompson, J-O-N-S Thompson. I'm on Twitter too, at RM Comedy. Our website is CanadaLand.com. This episode was excellently produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kate McIntosh. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us.